Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, I'm Rajesh Manwani, Head of Markets and Wealth Management Solutions for Julius Baer in Asia. And in today's podcast, we will speak about one of the most anticipated and probably controversial topics in modern finance. I'm referring to, of course, blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Here's a small sneak preview of just today's financial news headlines. On the back of a milestone moment for the industry, Euronews asks, which countries could follow El Salvador in making Bitcoin legal tender? Bloomberg reports how Bitcoin ETFs are mushrooming and getting more creative whereas Reuters had a more sobering update on China's crackdown on cryptocurrency due to energy misuse. All reminders of how relevant digital assets have become and how rapidly they are developing. Our today's podcast is for listeners who have chanced upon the occasional, often dramatized media headline, but would like to understand more about the building blocks of this phenomenon. We will have more detailed discussions in our upcoming podcast very soon. In today's conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Liebau. Dan is the founder of Lightbulb Capital, advising financial institutions on fintech and cryptocurrency strategies. He's an avid researcher, publishing several papers on the topic, including one recently by the MIT Press. Dan also teaches a course on digital assets and blockchain at Singapore Management University. And before starting Lightbulb Capital, he worked for 15 years in financial services, most recently on the board of HSBC Securities as COO in Singapore. In short, an excellent bridge between the crypto world and the traditional one, or what crypto enthusiasts call legacy finance. In other words, us banks. A very warm welcome, Dan. Thank you so much. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. So Dan, let's start from the very beginning. The year is 2008. The world is facing an unprecedented crisis with the fall of Lehman Brothers, the mortgage crisis, and a sharply rising unemployment. Confidence in the economy and also in the banking sector sinks to an all-time low, demonstrations against government agencies and banks. And in the midst of all this, very intriguingly, under the assumed identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, A person or a group of people we still don't know published a white paper on the Bitcoin blockchain. They introduced a system that addressed one of the most vexing problems many were trying to solve before. How to create trust digitally without any central authority. An idea that some believe could make large parts of the current economic system obsolete. Then let's start with the fundamental question. Why have these terms blockchain, cryptocurrencies emerged so strongly over this last decade? Very good question. And I think the answer to that we can really perhaps find in the first ever mined Bitcoin block that contains a quote, and I I read it for you. The Times, 3rd of January 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So you can tell that the founders of cryptocurrencies eventually were not very happy, like you said, with the current financial services system. 
That's why the title is also a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Peer-to-peer -peer means no intermediaries. And that's why often we talk about what we call a trustless system. So that doesn't mean that we cannot trust the system. It means that we don't have to trust our counterparty in a transaction. Interesting. So this blockchain was really born under this cloud of um, skepticism, for the lack of a better word, towards the then established economic order. But can you help our listeners understand, then what exactly is a blockchain and how does it work in practice? Sure. That's a great question. And uh, usually I get about a half a day to answer it in my class at SMU. And today you will try it in two minutes. I'll try it in, in under two minutes. So the main value proposition of a blockchain is really its immutability, right? So it's a recording device for transactions that allow us um, to store these transactions in an immutable fashion. Sorry, Dan, what do you mean by immutability? So immutability means that once a transaction is recorded on the blockchain, you cannot change it post X, right? And that makes it very different from other databases where an, an administrator could go in and say, okay, let me change that around. You often heard the term distributed ledger in this context. Distributed ledger is basically just a way of saying we have many, many copies of this database that is saved on all sorts of different computers across the internet, sometimes many thousands of copies. And in order to reach agreement between all of these different computers, at the core, you basically have this thing called a consensus algorithm. And the consensus algorithm is a mechanism that enables all of these different computers, sometimes we call them nodes, to agree on what the next information should be that goes into the next block as it's recorded. And so that's my two-minute overview, but I'm sure we'll expand a little bit on that. Well, you've done an excellent job in trying to distill what's half a day, but there's a lot in those statements, right, uh, Dan? So let's try and unpack them. First, let's maybe step back and just reflect on how money really operates. Money exists in different forms, as you know, as currency, as deposits, as financial assets. However, very often the way money is recorded, it's simply as digital entries in a variety of accounting ledgers or accounting books. For example, say, Dan, you're in Zurich and I'm in Singapore and you want to send me some money. I suppose you could just put some bills in an envelope and go down to your post office and send them to me. But of course, hardly anyone does that. The way most of us do it, in fact, the way we've been doing it for decades now is we make what's called an electronic transfer. So the money doesn't physically move, but there are changes to a series of electronic ledgers or books of accounts. Your ledger, which is your account with your bank, your bank's ledger, possibly that of a specialist intermediary used for payments, my bank's ledger, and then my own. And these centralized institutions, these regulated parties like banks, etc., help make this payment network trustworthy for its users. But they also add friction in terms of costs and time, right? So it is these very layers of the financial system, as I understand, and the fact that they are managed centrally is what blockchain-related technologies are looking to disrupt, right? So how exactly do they look to remove this friction? And what's the innovation, for example, in, in Bitcoin? Sure. So remember when we talk about when Bitcoin really came about, it was basically the fact that the founders of Bitcoin did not really trust the institution. So there's friction on the one side, but there's also a mistrust towards the system. But what's interesting about Bitcoin is that it's really a, a collection of different Lego blocks of innovation, if you like. So 
they all evolve around resolving what we call the double spending problem. And, and let me quickly explain what the double spending problem is. So if you look at a $10 note, you'll notice that there's lots of little interesting details on that note to make it really, really difficult to copy it. But when you compare that with, let's say, a Word document on your computer, you can probably create an exact copy of that Word document with two or three clicks. So it's quite difficult to create a mechanism that allows you to make sure that a digital piece of data cannot be replicated. Right? And that's very important for money. So you can't, we can't just copy money and duplicate it. So there are a number of these innovation Lego blocks, as I like to call them. One is based on a patent from IBM from 1976. So it's quite old. Uh, it's entitled, How Do You Blockchain Data Together? Right? So the word blockchain was used very even old, then. Very right? old, yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we always think about, you know, blockchain came out with Bitcoin, but it's, it's not the fact. There's another uh, critical innovation Lego block based on a paper by two research Haber and Shonetta who figured out how to timestamp a digital document. And I think that came out in 1991, so also not so new anymore. So it's been a series of ideas building on each other. Correct, correct. Then the next one we have uh, is basically the consensus algorithm, proof of work, that was originally put together to avoid spam attacks on a network. I think that came out about 1999. And it's interesting when we talk about you know, how everything developed over time. I remember very clearly in 2012, I had a dinner with a good friend and he said, you know, Daniel, I am minting digital money on my computer. You are in finance, right? So what do you think about that? And I, th I thought, you're really a dear friend, but nobody's going to care about your digital money that you mine on your own computer. I can even imagine the look on your face at that time. Well, you know, the look on my face now is perhaps even more interesting because he probably has a lot of Bitcoin and I don't. But that's just a little anecdote. I think one other thing that we always hear in the context of Bitcoin is cryptography. And um, while I don't have a PhD in cryptography, I want to kind of give you the intuition behind some of the key concepts. One is the one of a hash. So a hash is basically a digital fingerprint of a piece of data, right? a unique fingerprint. And the other interesting concept that you hear often is a so-called public and private key pair. And what is that? You can think about the public key as your unique identifier that everyone can know in a blockchain network. It's a little bit like your account number in banking. And then the private key is basically your password. The password allows you to sign transactions, allows you to transfer funds from one wallet or public key to another one. So with the blockchain now, there was a platform that allowed people to transact digitally yep. for them to store their digital assets. And because of this approach of the keys and the hash and the cryptography that went into validating these transactions, they could do this without knowing each other and without needing to trust any central referee uh, who would oversee and say, well, the money was still there or that it hadn't been spent more than once. That's right. Okay, good. So the, one of the first uses of blockchain was Bitcoin, I suppose, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which was the money system used to run it. Uh, and then I read the other day that there are now over 70 million wallet holders of cryptocurrencies, and it's growing. Yep. Why is this decentralization so appealing and to so many people? I think it depends a little bit on the background of the individual, so there's no blanket answer. I think, you know, for technologists, it's a very interesting piece of technology because 
it has baked in this concept of value and, and money, right? No other technology actually does that. If you think about other technologies like, let's say, IoT or, or AI. IoT being the Internet of Things. Correct, correct. So all of these technologies basically just try to make things faster, cheaper, better, right? But then blockchain is actually a little bit different. It's not about faster, cheaper, better. It's about, can I remove that intermediary and can I enable people to transact trustlessly? So that's the technologies, technologists' key thoughts, I guess. The whole bunch of people who want to get rich quickly, right? Let's just put that out there. I think another reason why blockchains become increasingly interesting is that they offer some sort of privacy. And as you know, you can sign up and open your own wallet on a blockchain without having to go through any sort of know your customer process. You can just create that wallet, that public-private key pair, and then you're up and running. I guess if you ask experts, investors today, they are probably seeing the opportunity in these smart contract platforms. Smart contract platforms help with reducing the cost of verification, cost of networking, and therefore have this massive network effect can grow very, very fast. And um, I think that is one of the very promising areas in cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Right. Now you've clarified that there are many different motives for adoption, uh, which are driving the different segments. One of the more concerning, let's get to the darker on the darker side of the motives that hasn't been good for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general in the past, was its use in facilitating illegal activities. So for instance, I remember a long time back, we had the Silk Road incident, sure. which was an online black market selling a lot of bad things and accepting Bitcoin as payments. More recently, we've had the hacking attack on the coastal pipeline in the US. The ransom was paid to the hackers in Bitcoin. So what is the current state of crime concerning Bitcoin, Dan? And how much does it worry you that takes away from what the technology can bring? Yeah, I guess if you look at um, technology history, novel technologies are always used by diverse set of actors. And then you get good actors and bad actors. It's no different in the, in the context of blockchain. I recently read a report that um, illicit activity on the Bitcoin network is now below 1% of the total transactions. So it's very low. I think in 2012, it used to be 7%. I don't know how that compares to you know, the US dollar or something like that, but the chart is, uh, tells a very, very clear story, right? So it's 7% to below 1%. You mentioned the coastal pipeline attack. Quite interesting, yeah? Because what I thought was interesting is that they got caught so swiftly, right? Yeah. Just a few days, right? Yeah, yeah. So what that says is that rogue actors who use Bitcoin for their illegal business, actually not that smart because now there are companies that do what we call on-chain analytics. And there's one company called Chainalysis, for example, is valued at over $2 billion by VC investors. And basically, it's very transparent what's going on the Bitcoin blockchain. And if you happen to convert whatever Bitcoin balance that you have into the fiat system, then most of the time, these institutions that can facilitate that will require you to disclose your identity. So I think if you're a rogue actor, Bitcoin is not a good idea. Right. Look elsewhere. So it's good to see that crime as a detractor for Bitcoin, while not fully gone away, seems like it's sharply on the decline. And, and that probably is a good thing for the platform for years to come. 
Now, Bitcoin was the first example of a working decentralized digital system. And you describe decentralized as something that doesn't depend on a central authority. But it was designed, I guess, for straightforward uses like payments. However, something happened, I think around 2014, that allowed these technologies to make a huge leap forward, to become much more useful. And what that was is something we will discuss in the second part of this podcast. Stay tuned. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.